I want to invite you to remain standing because as we're kicking off this series, because I believe as we've been going through it in the fall, we've been talking about making a connection between what we say we believe and what we really believe, which is revealed by the way that we live. So what we're doing is we're talking about the impact of faith. What difference does faith make? And so we're using as a template that great ancient creed known as the Apostles' Creed, where we're going back and forth, because I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I will cherish life as a gift. Because I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, I will give priority and loyalty to Jesus. And so using this Apostles' Creed as our roadmap, let's say these words together with one voice. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Wait a minute. Do you remember the homework assignment? We're not necessarily going to give you the words on the screen as we get later in the series. The homework assignment is that everybody in the church is going to memorize the words of the Apostles' Creed, that we're not going to use the screens as a crutch. Um, and uh, that even the fifth graders are memorizing the Apostles' Creed. And the question is, are you smarter than a fifth grader? <laughs> and remember, if you grew up in the church and you already know the words of the Apostles' Creed, Dr. Ray, then you will realize that you have to memorize what's on the front cover of the bulletin. You have to recognize that there's more, that you can go deeper into the 201 homework assignment. Everybody excited? Let's try doing the Creed thing again. We're going to put the words up there today, but you need to start working on this. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From then He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to be talking about that portion of the creed. This part's a little difficult where it said that he descended into hell. Do you believe that Jesus descended into hell? I mean, the first parts of the creed, they're kind of straightforward. You know, do you believe that God made everything, created everything? Yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus is the one true King and Messiah? Yes, I do. And then things start to get a little murkier and more mysterious that this King who was born had a virgin birth. That he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That this King did things that kings don't normally do, that he suffered. He suffered under another political leader and that he died for your sake and for mine. And then this phrase, he descended into hell. And you might be wondering to yourself, I don't remember that part of the story. Where did that come from? Well, one of the biblical references to this comes to us from 1 Peter. And so this is Peter's series of letters in chapter 3. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently. The phrase imprisoned spirits there is a euphemism for those who have already died and gone to hell. 
and that Jesus went there. This is hardly straightforward, right? So let's dig a little deeper. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start reading in the 13th verse. This is a very familiar gospel story in a very unfamiliar setting. And one of the things that happens is that we read these stories in isolation and we read them divorced from their historic and geographic kind of context. And in doing so, we miss the full impact of the story. And so we're going to do some history today. We're going to do some geography today. So I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking caps and to bear with me for a little while. I promise you there's a payoff at the end. I'm not bribing you with sugar or anything, but there is sugar available after the service and caffeine available downstairs in the Williams Center. But we're going to read the story first, and then we're going to discover why all this context is important. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. May God not only bless the hearing, but also the receiving and the doing of his holy word. This is Caesarea Philippi on a map during the time of Jesus. You'll notice Caesarea Philippi located at the top right-hand corner of the screen. This is about as far as Jesus traveled in his lifetime. It was 34 miles away from his hometown area of Galilee and also particularly Capernaum, which you can see on the map, which is where he based most of his ministry of his lifetime out of. Caesarea Philippi is not a place that a good conservative Jewish rabbi would go. It was basically the red light district of this area. It was pagan and it was as Roman as it got. Caesarea Philippi is located up in the mountains. Here is a picture. It's up in the foothills of what is known as Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 92 hundred feet above sea level. It is one of the few places where you can snowboard in Israel, um, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus was a skier. <laughs> What's amazing about Mount Hermon is on a clear day from the tops of Mount Hermon, you can see all the way to the Dead Sea, which is 90 miles away and is at 1,200 feet below sea level. So imagine this, the Jordan River waters start from the runoff of Mount Hermon and they run all the way into the Dead Sea, more than 10,000 feet below it in 90 miles. Before all of the damming and the blocking and the conservation of water that was used, now the Jordan River during the lifetime of Jesus was the fastest flowing river in the world. If you go see kind of the muddy creek that is the Jordan River today, it's almost hard for us to picture it. 
But so in these foothills were the Jordan River waters that give life to all of the valley below. That particular place is lush, and everybody knew that if it weren't for the waters that came from here, that we wouldn't have life anywhere else. And so through the ancient periods of time, through the ancient pagan periods, you had the prophets of Baal, you had lots of worship of that kind of regional uh, pagan god back in the world because that was uh, the pagan god for fertility. They knew it all started there. And over time, the different people groups who lived in this different area, as the regimes would change, you would have different manifestations of the different kinds of pagan gods. By the time you get to the lifetime of Jesus, it was primarily the Greek influence that was in a modified Roman way, and you had kind of the patron god of this area for the pagans was known as the Greek god Pan. The area before it was labeled as Caesarea Philippi was actually called Panium. Here's a picture of a kind of a sketch of Pan. He's half goat, half man. He's known for his playfulness. He's known for being the one who leads people kind of as a shepherd and the patron god of like flocks and nourishment, fertility, and for his prowess. That's the pagan god Pan, and he's kind of the go-to pagan god of the area. Here's an image up on the screen of what the temple looked like in Caesarea Philippi during the time of Jesus that would have been built to the Greek god Pan. On the left-hand side, you will notice that there is a temple there, and on the back side of that temple, you can see in the sketch, was a cave. This is what the cave looks like today. You can see some of the runoff of some of the waters that takes place there. And now I want to zoom back for you to be able to see the entrance of this cave from a distance. And this cave is where things start to get interesting. This cave was particularly creepy and gruesome. The first century Josephus historian said this. So he wrote this in the first century about this cave. This place is called Panium. A dark cave opens itself within which there is a horrible precipice that descends abruptly to a vast depth. It contains a mighty quantity of water which is immovable. And when anyone lets down anything to measure the depth of the earth beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. It is a deep cave. It is a creepy cave because what they believed was that this was the entrance to the underworld. The pagans thought this is a place where you would enter down into the realm of the dead, into the underworld. This cave is particularly gruesome because the temples that were there, they would conduct both animal as well as human sacrifices, and they would, after conducting those sacrifices, they would throw them into the carcasses, into the caves, in an attempt to appease the pagan gods from what they believed what was happening, which was that at nighttime, particularly in storms, that the spirits of the underworld would come out and they would go out and they would roam the areas. And the way that they killed people was to pull people back down into the underworld. Does anybody want to go spelunking in this cave? <laughs> Probably not many of us. Is it starting to click for you yet? In verse 16, when Jesus is revealed and 
Peter responds that you are the Messiah, you're the king, you're the one that we've waited for. He calls him the son of what? The living God. That Jesus, the son of the living, he's not the king of the dead. And also we find out that in this rocky area that Jesus says that yes, Peter, I'm gonna even change your name so your name means rocky. And on this kind of rock, I am going to build my church. And that Jesus talks about how he's going to die, that he's going to have to be offered as a sacrifice. And Peter rebukes him. And do you want to know what in the ancient world, I'm not making this up, what they called this cave in the ancient world? The gates of Hades. And Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Are you starting to see it? Jesus is not nearly as random as you think that he is. Jesus is pointing to the entrance of this cave and he's saying, I've got a date with this place. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna build up a church and it's gonna be an army and we're gonna storm the gates of this place and we're gonna blow it open and we're gonna take it back. Jesus is not gonna be sacrificed as some sort of passive victim. He's going to be the risen conqueror and he's going to lay down his life and he's going to enter into the realm of the dead in order to free those imprisoned spirit, those who are still caught in their sin and in their shame. Jesus received the full punishment of what we deserve in our sin and that he was fully human and he entered into hell to basically be able to say that there is no place that is safe from the redemption of Almighty God. I really like nature shows. Do you like those shows that tell you kind of about animals and they take a camera to a place that you wouldn't dare go on your own and let you see something, experience something in nature that's just so cool, you just can't believe that we get to see it uh, with our own eyes? There was a show uh, that National Geographic did this one time where they were talking about the hunting practices of lions. And these particular lions, one of the things that you learn in this show is that some of our conceptions of the male and the female lions need to be altered. We tend to think of the lion as that male lion with the huge mane and the large paws and the, just the gargantuan roar as kind of the king of the jungle. In reality, in the wild, the primary amount of hunting that takes place does not take place from the male lion, but from the female lionesses. That the female lionesses are faster and they're more cunning and they're better hunters than the male lion is. I live in a house of all women and I want you to know that in the Conwisher kingdom, it's no different than the animal kingdom. <laughs> Having said that, I am larger I am hairier and I have a much bigger roar. But that's how it works in the animal kingdom. So in this National Geographic show, they talked about how a male lion will come up upon, let's say like some gazelle and it will sneak up on them and the male lion will show himself and with his mighty maim and roar, he will scream at the gazelle. And what did the gazelle do? They run the opposite direction and they run right into the trap of where all the lionesses are waiting together to get them. As counterintuitive it is, 
The safest thing for those gazelles to do is to run not away from the roar, but to run towards the roar. As counterintuitive as it might be for us, sometimes the most important thing for us to do is to not run away from our fears, but to run towards our fears. To not run away from our doubts, but to run towards our doubts. Not to run away from our pain and the struggles, but to run through the pain and the struggles to the other side. Sometimes you need to charge the roar. And this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to do. To charge when everything else in you says, run away. The closest experience to hell on earth that I've ever been a part of was when I stood here. 17 years ago tomorrow, the anniversary of September 11th, 2001. It's almost impossible for me to imagine the attack that took place on lower Manhattan that the average college student right now has no memory of that particular event in history. When our nation was attacked in this way, we, our family, lived in the New York City area, and I'd love to tell you that particular story of that day at another time. Today, what I want to focus on is the first year anniversary. One year later, after the destruction of 9-11, where my family, along with the victims' families of those who had died in our community, as well as because I was serving as a police chaplain at the time, many of the families of the first responders, firefighters, and the police officers. On that one-year anniversary where all they had done was basically to clear away all the debris and to build a ramp that went down like seven floors. And we descended down that ramp for the memorial to touch the ground of where all that evil and destruction had been unleashed. They were reciting the names. There were moments of cheers. There was some singing. And there was a lot of silence. And I remember as we walked down this ramp, I remember that phrase from the Apostles' Creed kept creeping into my head. He descended into hell. There were signs all along all the fences, signs of encouragement. But one sign stood out for me. It was a sign and it had the emblem of the fire department of New York and the police department of New York and the words that said, they ran in when everyone else ran away. 
against every natural instinct, against everything rational within them. They rushed in when everything in your fiber of your being says, just run away. There is no square inch of creation that is safe from God's rescue mission. And Jesus rushed into hell in order to save. So what does that mean for us? Several of you probably read the church newsletter article that I sent out that talked about Dave Peterson, former interim pastor of the last year or so. And Dave Peterson talked about how particularly struck the part of Houston that he lived in is in terms of the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Did you know in Memorial area where Dave lives that most of the area there are houses that are still five feet underwater even all this time later? That they had to release water from the levees in order to make sure that they didn't overflow again. And so there are still significant parts of all these neighborhoods that they still can't even get back to their houses yet. Life has gotten back to normal for some. And for others, like Dave's daughter, they're still living with Dave and Terry. When the waters for Dave's daughter finally got too great and the danger seemed too much to bear, she got on the phone to call the police to see if there was anybody who could rescue them. While she's on the phone with 911, imagine all the people that are looking for help seeking rescue, on hold, wondering if anything might happen. There's a strange knock at her flooded door. With the waters already there, there's a man in the boat at her front door in a boat who said, are you Dave Peterson's daughter? And she's like, yeah. And he said, your dad years ago saved my life and now I'm here to save yours that's what we do we don't run away from the danger we run towards it we don't run away from hell on earth we run towards it because I believe he descended into hell, I will go the distance for others. Jesus came to finish what he started. Jesus talked more about hell than any other figure in the Bible. You want to know why? He wasn't scared of it. And he was coming to empty it out. And so, dear friends, because we believe Jesus descended into hell, we become that army that he promised about. We become that army that he is mobilizing that isn't afraid of the things in the cave. That we as God's people will march with the confidence of what he is doing into his glorious future. 
we charge the roar. And let us play. Our gracious and loving Father, we're so grateful. Grateful that you have rescued us and that you have gone all the way to the depths of the underworld for our own sake. Thank you, God, that you not only are the one to be able to pay the great, kind of the great sacrifice and the great price, but you are the one who goes before us to show us that nothing will stand in the way of your conquering love. Thank you, God, that you are the God of the living, that you are the one who establishes the rock that is your church, and that we are not on the defensive, but on the offensive of your love and your grace. And so give us, God, as your people, courage. Help us to, even when our instincts say run ahead, to charge forward to help and to love and to care. May we be that counterintuitive people, God, who run in when everyone else runs away as we now continue your mission of salvation. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.